Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Senator Tim Scott is officially in. Ron DeSantis is next. And more could be coming. Plus, Tucker Carlson's camp is teasing a treasure trove of Fox News secrets, and the EJs are back to discuss it all. Emily Jasinski is editor at The Federalist and host of The Federalist News Hour. Eliana Johnson is editor-in-chief of The Washington Free Beacon and co-host of the Ink Stained Wretches podcast. Emily and Eliana, welcome back to the show. Hey, Megan. Great to see you. Um, okay, I forgot to print my outline. Will you print my outline? No, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I made such a nice outline of the stories that I wanted to discuss with you both. Um, welcome to the show, and there's a lot to discuss, so let's kick it off with Tim Scott because that's the big news of the day. He's in. He's such a nice guy. He is such a nice guy. He he told this story when he came on the show last year about how this woman came to apply for uh, work with him. And she ha- she was a disaster. She was just a hot mess in the interview. She basically started crying in the interview and left and was like, I know I'm not getting it. He tracked her down. Long story short, he gave her the job anyway. She was, I think, working at a was it an airport? She was working at an airport like as a baggage handler. He tracked her down. He was like, come work for me anyway. Now she's his right-hand woman. Like, that's the kind of guy he is, right? That's the kind of guy he is. Here's just a little bit of how he sounded in making his announcement yesterday. Uh, Sot, is it two or three? Three. Our party and our nation are standing at a time for choosing. Victimhood or victory. Victimhood or victory. Victimhood or victory. Grievance or greatness. I choose freedom and hope and opportunity. Will you choose it with me? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Ah, I mean, I, I, you're rooting for the guy, right? Because he just seems like such a good guy. Nobody ever has a bad word to say about Tim Scott, but I might say a bad word about Tim Scott, and that is he has no chance. I mean, that's I mean, I'm sorry. He could he might be selected as VP, but realistically, he's not going to overtake Trump. Tim Scott, maybe Trump goes to jail, but then you've got DeSantis who's going to, you know, collate the remaining non-Trump vote. Now we're hearing rumblings that Glenn Youngkin is taking a new look at this race, governor of Virginia. I like Tim Scott, but you guys tell me, does he have enough of a national profile going into this thing that he has a realistic shot at this? I'll start with you, Eliana, on it. We are more than a year out from Election Day, and I do think we should be humble about kind of what we know about where things are going to go. I'm glad he's getting in the race. I'm glad Republican primary voters will have choices. His message, unlike um, some of the other messages we've heard from the, uh, you know, DeSantis isn't in, but I would say unlike DeSantis's message and unlike Trump's message is a message of optimism. Um, He has a wonderful life story and he's somebody, I think, regardless of what happens with his presidential campaign, who, um, who's, message and who as a person 
is important in the future of the Republican Party. So I'm glad he's running and um, we'll see what happens with the campaign. We've seen before, you know, plenty of people catch on, become part of presidential cabinets or be on the ticket. And who knows? Maybe he'll be the nominee. Um, I kind of doubt it like you, Megan, but I I do want to be humble in predictions because who would have thought we would end up with Trump as a nominee and as president? Well, it is important to be humble. So thank you for that reminder. Uh, And (laughs) look, it's not to say I wouldn't vote for the guy. I just don't, you know, realistically, I'm just looking at what's in front of him and it seems insurmountable to me. Um, Emily, you know, I, I had Charlie Kirk on the show yesterday and he didn't say this on the show, but he said it in something I was reading in prep. And he said, America doesn't need a nice guy right now. The GOP doesn't need a nice guy right now. They need a bare knuckled brawler who's going to say, I, I know what a woman is. I know what America is. I know like all those things and really sort of fight these crazy battles that we're being forced to fight right now. Yeah, and Tim Scott's on the banking committee and has a pretty good relationship with business, which in 2012 um, would have been a complete like that. That's a great thing. That's an asset for a Republican presidential candidate in 2012. Now it's a different story as far as voters are concerned. And there's a real duality to some of the other campaigns. We saw this with Donald Trump. He was make America great again, but he was also American carnage. You see the same thing with Ron DeSantis, where he says we have all of these extremely serious cultural problems, but we can make America Florida is where the campaign seems to be going with its messaging strategy. We've heard that actually used. And so Tim Scott really has one side of that. He has the side that we can be uh, we can be hopeful, as that clip you played showed. We can be optimistic about it. But how does that translate into policies? Um, if, if Charlie Kirk is making that point, um, that means that's how conservative media is likely to receive Tim Scott. That means it's, it's how a lot of voters are probably likely to receive Tim Scott. Uh, so what does what does the policy look like? What is he going to translate uh, this this diagnosis? Does he have the same diagnosis? And if he doesn't, um, does that mean that he's not going to have policies that crack down on things like corporate DEI, that crack down on um, all of the things that Trump gave in his famous American carnage inauguration speech mm-hmm. that I think captured the mood of the country probably better than uh, what Tim Scott just said? That'll probably appeal to some suburban voters. Um, and if you talk to people close to the campaign, they think that they can hold it out. Their best shot is a year from now, things will be different. Maybe Donald Trump has to drop out for some unforeseen reason. And then Tim Scott will be there waiting in the wings. Again, I'm skeptical of that, but uh, that is their their, uh, idea of where things could go. You know, what's crazy is if it winds up being Trump Biden uh, in the contest, forgive me, but they 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 could both die like they're old. They're old enough that one might not make it to the actual election day, never mind through a first term or in Biden's case, a second. I mean, this is something we actually have to factor in when you have presidential candidates who are around 80 years old. And Tim Scott's a young man. I think he's 57. Uh, DeSantis is like very young. He's 44. What is he? Like some crazy young, young number. Depresses me when these people are so much younger than I am. Um, uh, what is he, Steve? Yeah, 44. I got it right. Okay. Um, But DeSantis comes in tomorrow. And that's really the sort of biggest and most exciting thing that's happened in the GOP side since Trump's announcement, which wasn't that exciting. It was actually quite boring, as I pointed out at the time. But his entry is always Trump himself is interesting. Um, DeSantis comes in tomorrow, as we understand it. And now that will be a game changer because while he's been sort of soft running for a while, the announcement, the it's official moment, is a momentum builder for any candidate, especially one of the main ones like DeSantis. And I think you, le- you need look no further than like the article in Politico, which hit a couple days ago, 
which was an enormous takedown of DeSantis's wife to realize the mainstream media recognizes he is a threat. And while everyone wants to write him off as like, no way, can't get past Trump, especially the mainstream media because they want to run against Trump. Uh, the fact that they're now spending some ink trying to take down his lovely wife <laughs> tells me they're scared. They are scared, Eliana, of this guy, his beautiful family, what he might represent and how it might go if he manages to find a way around Trump. Oh, I was just staring at the pictures of their beautiful photogenic family, uh, which is why I didn't jump in and respond. But yes, um, (laughs) let me I will get to the Casey DeSantis profile that ran in Politico magazine that I that was jaw dropping. Um, I thought we were supposed to celebrate empowered women and the men who take their counsel and listen to them. Um, But of course, now that it is a conservative Republican doing it, this is problematic. We've got to be asking questions. Um, She has sinister motives. Um, But Megan, before we get to that, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how DeSantis announces tomorrow. And what I'm going to be listening for is the following. He said to donors, he kind of did a soft launch um, on a call with donors that the New York Times reported. And he said, there are three people in this race who, you know, getting in this race who could plausibly um, be president. Trump, Biden and me. And there are two people who could win. Um, and that's me and Biden. And I think tomorrow we have to hear more from DeSantis than Trump can't win. We need a better message than that um, from him or he will not defeat Trump. I just don't think Republican primary voters are going to be persuaded um, by an electability argument. They have to hear from DeSantis. Uh, Trump is unfit for office. And why? Is it COVID policies? Is it his character? They have to hear a frontal attack from him. um, And he needs to make the case not only against Trump, but for himself. He's in this very hard position because he doesn't want to lose the Trump base. He must win over the Trump base. And And he will not be the nominee if he's too afraid, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're unwinnable to him right now. They're loyal to Trump. And so I don't know what the play is. You know, I see the position he's in. He, if he attacks Trump full on, the Trump base gets even angrier and absolutely shuts the door to him. If he doesn't, it's like, well, why are you running then, Emily? Like, what if you think Trump's up to the job and adequate? What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> no, it's a good point. We've seen like some previews of what this attack could look like. It could look like COVID. They've already traded barbs kind of back and forth on who handled COVID better. And that's been a part of it. Um, we've seen Trump attack DeSantis like, from the left, interestingly enough, on the economy in Florida. Um, and so it's going to be, I think, a real test of where the right moves. But that's the problem for DeSantis is he's one in the anti-Trump lane, but also in the Trump lane. And I would say, you know, for him, he should just not overthink it and not have consultants sort of um, hand wring this to death. Because when he was elected barely as governor of Florida, took the reins and had a really successful run that actually, I think, shocked a lot of the country. Um, That was because he wasn't overthinking it. That was because he found that Mm. voters actually just really liked what he was doing. He was being sort of thoughtful and intellectual and and creating a blueprint for how to actually engage in the culture war with substantive pieces of legislation to take on the media with substantive serious criticisms. Um, And so that's where people started to say pretty organically, hey, this Ron DeSantis guy is sort of Trump without some of the Trump 
uh, negatives, the Trump disadvantages. Maybe we should uh, think about whether he could have a, a national profile and be a presidential candidate. And so I think part of it is just not overthinking things. And to the Casey DeSantis profile that Politico wrote, which was hilarious and infuriating at the same time, let's look at the way the media has treated Giselle Fetterman um, or Joe oh, Biden just in the last couple of ridiculous. years. But Fetterman in particular. Dr. Jill Biden, Emily. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. All right. As Whoopi said, she could be our next Surgeon General. She should be our next Surgeon General. (laughs) Actual quote. A little respect. Perfect side by side. No, you're a hundred percent right. So to bring the audience up to date, up to date, Politico um, on I think it was Friday drops this piece on on Casey DeSantis, the Casey DeSantis problem. Quote: His greatest asset and his greatest liability. Um, okay, by by some, she's been seen mostly as a superstar of a political spouse, a not so secret weapon, an antidote for her sometimes awkward husband. And then they go on to say the following. Um, okay, the more complicated, uh, but also more instructive reality is that she's neither the fawning caricature she's made out to be in uh, in conservative circles, um, and even sometimes the ma- mainstream media, nor a Shakespearean villain. She might well be a bit of both. She can ameliorate some of the effects of his idiosyncrasies. She can also accentuate, even exacerbate his hubris, his paranoia, his vaulting ambition, <laughs> because those are all traits that they share. He wouldn't be where he is without her. He might not get to where he wants to go because of her. Okay, wait, it gets better. <laughs> She's like, they're so transparent, right? In their hate. Political notes, many people would only speak anonymously because of the power of a governor who might be a president and also that of his wife and what they perceive to be their collective capacity for spite. She's more paranoid than he is, said a staffer. He's a vindictive motherfucker. She's twice that said a higher up on one of his campaigns. She's the scorekeeper. Hello, we all are when it comes to our husbands. I mean, you mess with Doug, you'll get it from me. I'll get you sooner or later. Trust me. I'll lie in wait and I'll get you. That's how every good spouse is. Uh, some of the sharpest knives in the set belong to her, said the GOP lobbyist that they spoke with. Um, does she also feed into his worst instincts of being secluded and insular and standoffish with staff? Yes, yes, she does. And there's, of course, a comparison to Lady Macbeth in here, notwithstanding Politico's position in November 2012, that comparing women in politics, showing images of Hillary, Jill Biden, and Giselle Fetterman to Lady Macbeth is sexist. And yet it appears, I think, twice in this article about Casey DeSantis. So really, it's only sexist if it's against a Democrat. That's generally how it works, Eliana. You know, I do think it's worth noting that the Lady Macbeth comment came from Trump ally Roger Stone and that some of these attacks on Casey DeSantis are actually coming from the from the right uh, because the Trump people are scared of her, too. Um, I have met her in person. Uh, It's kind of the elephant in the room. She is drop dead gorgeous. Okay, she looks like a beauty queen. She's lovely. She's very smart. Um, She's formidable. And he listens to her. People's spouses are important. And I got like, I actually got kind of a Nancy Reagan vibe from reading this article in that like she's kind of an enforcer. I don't know when that became a bad thing, Um, but it is Politico's job to say that the tropes emanating from um, the primary, from 
DeSantis's political camp uh, opponents towards Casey DeSantis are sexist. And they put none of that context around this. Um, and it's offensive. It's offensive. They would yeah. never, ever allow um, a Democrat, a Democratic spouse to be attacked in this way without no. um, contextualizing in that way. You're exactly right. And, you know, Emily, it does show something, though, about how they actually feel, because, you know, the mainstream's got a million pieces about how it's Trump's. It's Trump's. It's Trump's. It's done. It's over. I mean, you might as well be talking to a Trump staffer when you read most of the mainstream papers on where the GOP primary race is. And I realize he's the overwhelming favorite. Of course, I think the latest poll had him at 61 and DeSantis at 16. Um, However, however, pieces like this kind of show what's really going on. Their real belief is that DeSantis does have a meaningful chance still and must be hobbled, you know, that that they, like Trump, want to, as they put in this piece, kill the DeSantis uh, candidacy in its crib. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point, because the Trump campaign and the media have one thing in common, and that is they love drama. They love the blood sport of politics. And the Trump campaign, I think that's why they've always gotten along with the media. If you go back to like 2015, um, obviously, they don't get along with the media in the sense that they're constantly like publicly at loggerheads. But Trump, despite all of his complaints about the media, has leaked constantly to the mainstream media, the so-called mainstream media, um, is constantly talking to Politico, New York. Times, his people are, uh, maybe not him himself, because they're always going to be quoted. They have great relationships. They text back and forth, you know, the Trump allies, Roger Stone, every corporate media reporter here in DC has Roger Stone's phone number. Um, they all talk to these like, like Trump consultants, Trump hangers on. Um, and I think that's where there's kind of an advantage to Donald Trump media wise. And they don't even, the media doesn't realize they're being played by the Trump camp when the Trump camp comes to them with stuff. I remember I was working on a story a few years ago about um, a Republican and some of his former staffers were complaining about his wife having too much control over the office. And the deeper I got into the story, the more I realized there was no news there. Uh, it was just a protective good wife taking care of her husband. Right. Uh, and so I ended up not running the story. But they would never do that because they live for the conflict and they see the conflict as inherently newsworthy when it's against a Republican. But if it's against a Democrat, they see what's newsworthy as her not being devious or sinister, but her being uh, in control and smart and strategic. And it's just a fascinating, I think, side by side, particularly the Fetterman example. You've got this family that, as Eliana points out, they're so lovely. You're looking at them like, my God, it's like a sort of a new version of Camelot and the Kennedys, except hopefully without all the cheating. Um, and, you know, they, they've, they're very appealing. You look, it's like, oh, I'd love to see those little kids behind the Resolute desk, you know, the way we had with JFK Jr. Anyway, That's what we have in looking at them. And so what do they do? They try to attack it. They try to undermine it. They try to say she's a witch. She's an evil bitch, basically, is what they're saying. You don't want her trying to alienate those GOP women, right, who DeSantis is said to be more appealing to than Trump. No, no, you don't want him. You get the bitch wife. You don't trust me, ladies. You don't want her. And you can see them doing it like bit by bit. Meanwhile, they'll they'll never lay a finger on Jill Biden, Dr. Jill and her absurd need for that title or Giselle Fetterman and her weirdness about her husband's illness and how like he had me. How could he be depressed? Like, okay, we're never going to see a piece on any of that. And to me, it's it's just uh, transparent and it's irritating. Um, Meanwhile, if you take a peek at how the left is talking about any of these guys, whether it's Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, they're all an equal threat to the republic. I give you the ladies of the view. 
I think that. one of the issues that Tim Scott um, has is that he seems to think because I made it, everyone can make it. Ignoring, again, the fact that he is the exception and not the rule. And until he is I, the rule, he has, then he can stop talking about systemic racism. He's got Clarence Thomas syndrome. But I do think yes. that he, he has championed policies mm. specific to help the black and brown community. The First Step Act, which many, I know a lot of liberals think it didn't go far enough, but it helped in the first year get 3,000 inmates released into rehabilitation programs. Those are all great. He was the champion of the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which I think was able... He was one but, of them. Yeah, he was, listen, them, I was don't take it... Look, he's done some good stuff, okay. But if you're running for president, you got to do more than that. Yeah. You have to represent us as a nation and then say, and as a black man, this is also how I feel. But you can't pretend that it's not there mm -hmm. and that it's not an issue for the people you're running, for the party you're running for. Mm -hmm. They are in part the problem this cat down in in florida i mean black people know there's a problem in florida yep. okay they got it all it's all in that sound tim scott needs to come out and acknowledge his blackness or he's got clarence thomas syndrome and instead of being grateful to a country for providing him with opportunity he's got to bash the company because not everybody the country because not everybody has achieved exactly what he's achieved like sunny in her multi-million dollar property with a son at Harvard <laughs> who went to law school, who's got a great career in making millions on television. See, she's a good person because she hates America. You see, that's how it works. Amazing. It's, a, it's just it's truly the, the distillation of the worldview. You have to tear Tim Scott down um, for representing a, an optimistic and I would say fairly accurate vision of America that, that and that's what's interesting about what we were talking about earlier, the optimism versus the pessimism, make America great again versus America, car American carnage. There's a swath of this country that actually really does experience the, the country that Tim Scott is tapping into and the country that Tim Scott is describing. Um, and that's where that that's like actually very important. And the media thinks that they're the champions of the downtrodden people they never talk to, they never interact with. And so they have all of these diagnoses and solutions that are completely out of touch with what people actually want and was actually good uh, for communities around the country, whether they're rural or inner city, the media just sits back in their comfortable chairs and tells them, this is what you need. This is what you want, by the way. And it gives them the sense of moral authority that is totally unearned. And I can't imagine how black conservatives like Tim Scott watch clips like that on the view um oh. because it's just in acting like they're invalidated they're enablers of bigotry the way they get smeared i truly don't know how they put up with it because it is yeah. so disgusting the more accomplished a conservative black man or woman is the more the left hates them hates them he addressed this a bit yesterday in his remarks here's sat too when i cut your taxes they called me a prop when I refunded the police, they called me a token. When I pushed back on President Biden, they even called me the N-word. I disrupt their narrative. I threaten their control. The truth of my life disrupts their lies. There you go, Eliana. Whoopi got what, what she wanted. Sonny got what she wanted. He talked about how there's racism in America. Unfortunately for the ladies of The View, he's talking about it coming at him from the left, from people like the ladies who sit on that panel. Of course, because he doesn't uh, 
go along with their group think. And they said, oh, he, you know, he'll go the path of Clarence Thomas. You know, some of us would think that's a wonderful thing, uh, right? but they're saying it like it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. And Megan, I don't even think you got to the uh, NAACP putting out a travel advisory for the state of Florida, saying that it is dangerous for African-Americans to travel to Florida uh, while the leaders of that group go on vacations there. Um, it, oh, the, and the head of the does... NAACP is in Tampa. Charlie Kirk pointed that out. Yes, he's in Tampa. One of the directors. Um, it, it does show the extent to which, you know, these are these are just extensions of a political party and a political point of view um, where free thinking among um, African-Americans is not is not welcome. And that is the racism of it. The question I have about Tim Scott that that is kind of interesting, I've, I've been listening to others debate it. He came on and I asked him about his love life because he's unmarried. Um, so he's not married and has no kids. We talked about that. And I think he's still hopeful that, you know, he's going to land the plane. He's going to meet Ms. Wright and, you know, whatever. But th- there even some on the right have been saying it's weird that it's he's 57 and he's never gotten married and, you know, he has no kids. And if you have no kids, do you really have a stake in the game as a potential president? I'm sure we've had bachelor presidents in the past, but they'll make an issue out of it, Emily. I mean, Trump will probably make an issue out of it because he has such a stellar home life to point to. If he's not truth socialing that right now, it's, it's probably <laughs> soon to come. Um, yeah, I, I recommend marriage. Yeah. <laughs> It's really it's going to be interesting to see how he handles it, because, yeah, I mean, we have had bachelor candidates, bachelor presidents, um, but it's a really tricky balance. Uh, It's definitely a point of intrigue. Obviously, he's been uh, very busy in his 30s and in his 40s, building a big political career. So I I do think that'll be an interesting question. But it also it's like when Don Lemon, Lemon uh, went after Nikki Haley for uh, being Pastor Prime, which you, you covered fantastically, that resonated with people. And the Tim Scott already sort of preemptively being like, when I cut your taxes, they called me X, Y and Z. That's super interesting because these media attacks, I think Republicans have really learned like the Harvard Harris poll that came out yesterday and Glenn Greenwald was tweeting about a lot of the the really interesting stuff from it. Americans' distrust in media has just become huge. And it's really hugely important to voters, too. It's not just like we all understand the media is a problem. It's we all understand the media is a problem. And now we're going to vote based on it. And so I think that's kind of like I can really see those personal attacks on Tim Scott, questions raised by Trump, by the media about his personal life. I can see it savvy sort of consultants and people putting in his ear, you know, good ways to spin it. Um, But it is, I think, genuinely a point of intrigue for for voters. I'm sure they have an answer that they think is good prepared for it. Uh, but it'll come up for sure. Yeah. I don't know. Some people don't meet the right person, Eliana. And it's like, what are you going to do? It's better to stay single than to marry Ms. Wrong and make a bunch of kids with Ms. Wrong and then divide up a family. Maybe he just, you know, didn't meet the right person. I don't know. I, I've just, I thought it was interesting that the, the comments were coming from some on the right. It wasn't just a leftist attack on him. You know, there are some more sort of family oriented Christian commentators who are like, where's the family? Where's the marriage? Where's all that? On the Harvard Harris poll, um, it is interesting. And my God, I thought this, what, what I thought was fascinating to me on this, they asked, what's your principal source of TV news? And they asked Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And of course, uh, 40% of Republicans say their principal source is Fox News. 
25% of independents say that. 26% of independents, more independents say other than Fox, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, or MSNBC. So the majority of independents are the, the plurality, whatever, however the numbers work, but more independents say they're not getting their news from television now than ever before. And I think that's, that's because they're all in our lane. They're over here in digital media. You know, they're listening to Emily on The Federalist. They're listening to you and ink-stained wretches, hopefully listening to The Megyn Kelly Show right now on SiriusXM Triumph Channel or via <laughs> podcast. Um, and so it's, but it's not just independents, 24% of Republicans too, 24%, much smaller numbers in the Democrat category, only 12%. Uh, say other. And of course, they're mostly most of the Democrats are getting their news from CNN uh, or MSNBC. And then they sort of split over the mainstream channels. In any event, what these numbers show is that huge swaths of the American public still believe in some of the nonsense reporting that we've seen over the past few years, still believe that um, Trump worked with Russia, 44 percent, still believe the Steele dossier accusations, 44% still believe that. Still believe the Hunter Biden laptop is disinformation, 41% believe that. But the majority have rejected it, notwithstanding the ubiquitousness, Eliana, of the messaging on those issues. It is amazing. I mean, look, most people are not following this stuff the way we are. Um, it is not their professions. And um, people are informed by having the news on in the background while they're doing the dishes and taking care of kids. So that actually doesn't surprise me at all. And it is the reason that the drumbeat over four years of Russiagate is extraordinarily effective, even if none of those claims um, hold up, because the narrative is just sort of in the water. And same with the Hunter Biden laptop. And I think it was Dean Acheson, the Truman Secretary of State, who said something about, you know, the massive difficulty of correcting the record once like a, a once something incorrect gets out there. Um, and that's I think that's what the right is grappling with now. And they're doing so when the mainstream media is entirely controlled. Um, basically by the left, CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post. These people aren't going out to correct the record. Um, so it's not surprising at all. The facts come out in a 302-page Durham report. How many people do you think looked at that carefully? Where was that covered no. uh, carefully? No so th this this really doesn't surprise me. And I think it does show you, you know, what conservatives, what Republicans are up against. And, you know, my colleagues and I wonder often, like, how many points is that worth on the ballot? Yeah, that's um, why people think their election was rigged. Massive, massive help. E even if they don't believe that Dominion votes were changed, you know, they think their election was rigged. And just to correct that last stat I gave you, th this is um, Democrats believe that the Hunter laptop is disinformation. Fifty nine percent of Democrats believe that that it's that the Hunter Biden laptop was disinformation. Fifty nine percent. Only forty one percent believe the laptop was real of Democrats. And that's a story that eventually the mainstream media was forced to correct its mistakes on. You know, we did eventually have CNN and The New York Times and CBS come out and say, OK, sorry, we were wrong about that. It's not disinformation. It's real. And still, even with them correcting the information, Emily, you've got 59 percent of Democrats sticking with the original bad reporting that it was disinformation. This is what the GOP is up against. I mean, this is why Republicans get so angry and like there's some patience for Trump and his harping on 2020. It's limited, but there's some patience for it because they, too, are pissed off.
And it's like, so when Trump was at his CNN town hall going back and forth with Caitlin Collins over whether the election was rigged or stolen, Caitlin repeatedly said uh, the election was not rigged. The election was not rigged. Well, there's a broad definition. I mean, we can all, I think, here agree the election was not stolen. Rigged is a broader definition. When you look at 51 former intelligence officials and the CIA, we now know from reporting a couple of weeks ago, um, colluding to create a letter they knew was false, saying that laptop looked like Russian disinformation. That is a serious level of interference on behalf of the actual government that was using government resources because we know that a CIA official used their CIA email account to solicit signatures for that letter. Um, and so, again, this is a big question for the Tim Scotts and the Nikki Haley's of the world. When you're talking just about uh, the greatness of America and not about the American carnage, to go back to that uh, example, this is a serious, serious problem when you have a swath of the country. How many, to Eliana's point, how many, how many points is that worth? People have tried to study it. I think it's really hard to study how that affected 2020, how it, the smears of Russian collusion affected 2016. So many of them turned out not to be true. It's just kind of in the water. And when you look at the Harvard Harris poll, a lot of people had this glass half full takeaway, like look at how uh, trust in the mainstream media is cratering, it's plummeting. It's like that is all true. The media's power is waning and it is happening pretty rapidly relative uh, to the course of history. But oh my gosh, their power is still vast and it is still egregious. And it's sad that so many people are being served so poorly by uh, folks they put their trust in because CNN, remember, ran those ads saying this is an apple. This is a banana. Some people might try to tell you it's a banana, but it's a freaking apple um, while they were telling everybody that a, an apple was a banana for years. I mean, it's just nonsense and they're making money off of it and they are destroying the country. So it, it's just incredibly frustrating. It's good. It is a glass half full that people are starting to realize, but we're nowhere near the position that we would need to be um, because those numbers say it all. Mm. Well, I'm very encouraged that people are turning to other sources, not just because I'm in this lane, but because I do think you have to select your news by voice now instead of by network. I think you get agendas pushed on you when you go to a corporation, even one you may trust like Fox News. Look how Fox has changed. Look at the reporting over the past couple of days, the Daily Signal report on how woke they are on the gender ideology and forcing their reporters to use the gender affirming care language and forcing them to use the right, not the right, but the pronouns of choice inside the building and all of that stuff and forcing them not to report on Dylan Mulvaney and telling the Tucker staff, you bet, you know, pushing back on his decision to use he pronouns for Dylan, all that. You have to figure out what voice you trust, what personality do you trust? Because these big corporations have an agenda that we're seeing more and more doesn't match up with what what's in the interest of the American people. Stand by. We have much, much more. Megan, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We we did. okay. technically, we had four years of Russiagate um, and and, you know, several months of Hunter Biden laptop is disinformation. And technically they did come out and correct the record, but the volume at which that was done, we had full blast, you know, at 12 Russiagate and full blast at 12, you know, banned on Twitter and, uh, you know, the Hunter Biden laptop story. And then there's like, you know, quiet as a mouse, a little peep story on A36 that, oh, actually, you know, the stuff isn't true. They're not equal. Like, uh, you know, the call and response are not equal there. So it's no surprise that people remain confused. Um, CNN, New York Times and The Washington Post won Pulitzer Prizes for their reporting on Russia on complete BS. Oh my God. Um, 
And so it doesn't surprise me at all. Like the admission of mistake is not done with the same volume and wall to wall coverage as was, you know, the sensationalist coverage of the so-called scandal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's like, uh, what is the line from The Godfather? Like, hopefully with the same energy with which you besmirched it. (laughs) 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 Something like that. (laughs) All right, stand by. We have more with the EJs coming up right after this. So, ladies, uh, we are getting more flavor on why Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News, courtesy of the man writing a biography, an authorized biography of him called Tucker. I did not know this was happening, but it's coming out in July. And um, this man, Chadwick Moore, who has been on Tucker's show in the past, took to Twitter yesterday to say that he has reporting about the real reason Tucker was fired and did not want to wait until July to release it. And it's a reason that we have heard speculated about in the press and that was reportedly relayed to Tucker himself by two board members, uh, or so the reporting on this matter claims. Here's Chadwick Moore via Twitter talking about that issue. Uh, Sapphire. It has now been reported that his firing was a condition demanded by Dominion as part of the settlement with Fox. Although Dominion has denied this, my sources have intimate knowledge of the situation, and they have assured me, even before this news leaked, that that is, in fact, the truth. If that is true, it would mean that a small group of people who have a controlling interest in Dominion have managed to silence what is arguably the most important and influential conservative voice in the country, possibly until after the next presidential election. This is interesting because he's, he's back to the Dominion. Now, I have to say, honestly, I don't know how how Moore would know this. I really don't. Unless he's talking to Rupert. <laughs> Tucker doesn't know this. And Tucker's lawyer doesn't know what the reason is. If this is true, that it was a deal between Fox and Dominion, a very small circle of people would know. And that would be Rupert, presumably Lachlan, Suzanne Scott, and a couple key people on the Dominion side. What are the odds that any one of those people is talking to Chadwick Moore, right? It's very slim. Now, yes, maybe they relayed information to the board and a member of the board is talking to Chadwick. We've already learned that from Tucker. Tucker's already released in one of these news reports that a board member told him or two told him that it was due to Dominion. Um, So I don't I'm not sure what to make of his claim, but I will say this. The The Dominion denials on this are weak sauce. All my spidey senses are up as a lawyer when I read the way they deny this. And I I had Kelly McGuire, my producer, go back and try to find all their denials. What have they said? And these are the two salient ones. First, they said Dominion did not insist on Fox firing Tucker as part of the settlement. We did not insist on it. Hmm. That's not enough. That's too narrow. A sliver. That's too narrow a sliver. Then the second one was a little bit wider. And they said Dominion made no demands about Tucker's employment. Now, listen, if you are being accused of making this a deal term, when you come out and say it's not a deal term, it was never discussed. The whole thing's absurd. Why would you say I never insisted on it? I never demanded it. How well (laughs) was it a deal term or wasn't it? You know, these are my questions. Was it a deal term? Was it offered? Did you agree? Did someone else suggest it other than Dominion? Was it discussed with anyone at all? What was the outcome of that? All those questions are left unanswered by these weird 
very finely crafted denials by Dominion. And these are not dumb lawyers. They just won $800 million uh, from Fox in a settlement. So they know how to do a sweeping denial and they're not doing it. So that is the one thing that would lead me to say maybe they really are on that. Plus the fact that right after they settled, I mean, the week after he was fired. So the timing certainly would favor an interpretation like this. Um, what do you gals make of this, that the possibility that he was a casualty of that settlement? OK, Megan, I have questions back for you. <laughs> um, I didn't know yeah. where you were going with Chadwick Moore, but the thing I do think was interesting about it is, OK, it may or may not be true, but it's definitely what Tucker wants people to think, because this is his authorized biographer who and Tucker tweeted he's it. talking to. And all of a sudden, the book, the book is getting rushed to press. You know, there are other people working on not authorized Tucker biographies. So, OK, Tucker wants people to think he was fired because of Dominion. I'm curious, what is the advantage? Let's say he was fired because of Dominion. What is the advantage to Dominion um, of getting Tucker as a scalp, but not having anyone know about it? Well, they silenced him. I mean, there there was a report via um, OMG, you know, uh, James O'Keefe's new news outlet. And he reported last week with, I have to say, we didn't go with this because it's a producer none of us had ever heard of. And half my team is from Fox. You know, I'm from Fox. Um, None of us knew this guy. But this guy did raise one point that I was like, well, that's interesting. He said, and I have, forgive me, because I haven't done an independent check on it, that the comms director for Dominion came from the Biden White House. Now, the comms director wouldn't be directing settlements and so on. But how tight is Dominion with the Biden White House? Was there any sort of hand in the politics, the politics arena in making this happen? Or, you know, was Dominion just fed up with Fox in general and wanted to punish it in a special way? Right. Just take their number one host and punish their audience. Like there, there has to be more pain than just the money of which Rupert Murdoch has, you know, gobs. So who knows? I haven't believed this theory, but but I do think like it's interesting to me that Dominion's denials are so weak. Keep going, Eliana. No, I then I just wonder if they did want to exact revenge, the the denials and the secrecy angle about it, I don't totally understand. And then I think from the Biden White House angle, Sure, Tucker's a problem for the Biden White House, but he's also he also complicates life for Republicans. Like if I were the Biden White House, I wouldn't have really wanted to take Tucker out. He's he's a complicated figure. He's not just an asset, you know, for for look at look what he did to Kevin McCarthy. He had Kevin McCarthy tied up in knots. So I I just don't know. Um, But so I think the most interesting thing for me out of this was, okay. This this is the narrative Tucker's going with or wants people to think. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, th- th- I think obviously Tucker is struggling to get them to agree to let him out of the deal. And if he actually does launch this show on Twitter, it will be a breach of his deal, almost certainly. And it's on. Then then Fox has got to decide whether to sue him or arbitrate, probably because they have an arbitration agreement. Um, and so right now they're still pushing for some sort of amicable resolution. But you're seeing Tucker and his allies up the ante. By the way, I should point out that I do not. Tucker's never asked me to do anything on his behalf. I don't know. They write up out like his allies are coming down. That is not me. I I report the news as I get it. I work to get new information. I bring it to my audience. But I just want to make clear I am not being used by anybody as an ally or to do anybody's bidding. This is my honest reporting and my honest take as a former Fox News person. Um, 
And one of the things that I'm seeing now, and I do think this is this has got a Tucker friend fingerprint on it, is there's a piece in the Daily News talking about how there's a treasure trove. He is sitting on a treasure trove of potentially damaging Fox secrets, including revelations about extramarital affairs and workplace misconduct. And that um, if this goes to an arbitrator or a court, it's going to get really ugly, like really ugly. So they're not letting him out. And meantime, Emily, the numbers at Fox are just absolutely dreadful. We're, we've been keeping the running tally here on the MK show. Um, post Tucker first four weeks, right? We have 20 shows now to evaluate these four weeks versus the last four weeks when Tucker was uh, at the anchor desk. I'll just give you the percentages. The 7 p.m. is down 22%. This is in the overall. This is like all viewers, not the young viewers. The 7 p.m. is down 22. The 8 p.m. is down 55%, more than half in its numbers. The 9 p.m. is down 29%. So Sean Hannity lost one third of his audience too. The 10 p.m. is down 24%. So Laura Ingram lost a quarter of her audience. And 11 p.m. with Gutfeld, he suffered the least. He's down 12%. Now let me take you to the key advertising demo, 25 to 54. 7 p.m. down almost 40%, 37 in total. 8 p.m. down 64%. In the 25 to 50, that's what they base their advertising rates on. Um, 9 p.m. down almost 50, 48% Hannity is. 10 p.m. down 37%, 11 p.m. down 25%. That is a hemorrhaging that is happening in the Fox News primetime. They're hemorrhaging their viewers and their ratings. And why they don't understand that they have every incentive of fixing it somehow. Let him free. Let him get out there. Stop the bleeding. I don't get it. I don't know. And I have like some thoughts that you actually may know more about. I think it was in maybe it's in the Gabe Sherman book. There's this anecdote that Roger Ailes used to yank people arbitrarily off the air just to show that the audience would still be there, that it wasn't about them. It was about the Fox system. No idea whether or not that's true. I think it was. I think that's a Gabe Sherman thing. I'm not sure. I don't know. I never I don't remember him doing that, but it sounds possible. (laughs) It's interesting because with Tucker, uh, and I think you do generally see that when people are out, um, there's maybe a small dip in ratings, but this is unlike anything else. And I think that speaks to uh, how little Fox understood what it had on its hands with Tucker Carlson. I think they didn't understand what he meant to the conservative movement um, and to people who are just curious about politics and interested in it, sort of like across the spectrum. They had pretty big viewership from Democrats and independents too. um, And I just don't think that they, they understood what an asset they had in in him. And I don't think they I think the Daily Signal story you mentioned was the first shot across the bow from Tucker's camp saying we got stuff and we can work with stuff. So you better work with us. Um, and my just last broad thought is I don't understand legally what Dominion would be doing with a handshake agreement, uh, what Rupert Murdoch would be doing with a handshake agreement that they yanked Tucker off the air. That seems like a huge liability to have with a small group of people. None of it really makes sense to me. I want to get a Dominion lawyer or representative on this show. And I am going to ask very simple questions. Was it a deal term? Was it raised by anyone? Was it ever discussed by anyone on the Dominion team with anyone on the Fox team who had principal negotiating responsibility? If I can see the agreement, would I see the name Tucker Carlson in there? Like there are there are certain ways of getting to this that get beyond those sliver denials uh, that really don't tell us much. And I do have to wonder in the wake of all this reporting, whether that is for a reason. Um, We'll continue to talk about it. And up next, before we go to our other topics, I've got to talk to you about what's happening with Newsmax and CNN. CNN may no longer be around. I mean, it's that bad. CNN may, may be going away. 
prepare yourself. I know you need to brace yourself. <laughs> uh, the EJs stay with us. So ladies wanted to tell you that uh, we're just now getting an announcement from the DeSantis team that we can expect an event with the governor. Ooh, what could it be about? Um, tomorrow evening, they said between four and five, we'll get a more specific time between now and then, but it's going to be in Miami, uh, which is not his hometown, but we'll find out uh, exactly where and why Miami DeSantis. I mean, listen, this is an important moment for our country. This guy could win. He could win. The polling right now shows him tying with Joe Biden in a head to head matchup before he's even announced. It shows Trump beating Joe Biden by seven, despite the fact that Trump has got an enormous amount of baggage and most people's opinions on Trump are immovable. Right. They, they have very strong opinions and they're immovable. And he's beating Biden by seven. So if DeSantis can find a way around Trump, the guy actually could win the presidency. Um, America needs only to be introduced to him more fully, potentially. You know, we'll see. I mean, he's got some he's got some personal peculiarities. Um, but when he legislates, when he when he leads, I think a wide swath of America is going to find him very, very appealing. Emily, am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think it's a little it's a little of what Tim Scott is going for and a little what Donald Trump is going for. And we've seen that work for him in Florida, where he's able to put up crazy numbers um, and help other Republicans in the state put up crazy numbers with all of the demographics that you sort of need in a post-Trump Republican Party, keeping the working class, keeping minority voters that have come in the Trump coalition, while also getting some of those suburban voters um, who are, are fairly well off and maybe a little touchy on the culture wars and want uh, what feels like a return to normalcy while also addressing some of these really serious problems, but not getting bogged down in divisiveness uh, as they see it. So that's the the DeSantis recipe here. Can he do that with Florida being a fairly representative bellwether state? Um, is that a recipe for like translating what worked in Florida across the country? I don't know. We're going to see. I think some of his personal, um, like, as you say, peculiarities, personality issues, you know, is he the warm, fuzzy politician? Uh, probably not. But I also think some of that is overstated because when he gets out on a stage, people say he's not the best debater, but like when he's going back and forth with, an, a, report, with a reporter, when he's riffing um, on his own, I do think he's, he's pretty good. The question is whether anyone can uh, contrast with Trump in a way that gives them longevity, because that just didn't happen in 2015, 2016. Um, when you have a chunk of the Republican Party that is absolutely wedded to Donald Trump for some you know, perfectly legitimate reasons as voters, if you talk to people, they have their reasons and, and they're reasonable and based in um, some really tough things that have happened in the country. Uh, if you can't peel any of those people away from Donald Trump and you're splitting the rest of the vote between yep. uh, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Sununu, whoever else thinks they're getting in this race. I forgot about Pence, Lisa Hutchinson, Nate, Larry Elder, John Bolton. Don't forget, he announced on John Good Bolton. Morning Syria or whatever it was. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Just, so, so that really all. leaves it. You know, most Republican voters didn't vote for Trump in the 2016 primary. Um, they voted for other options, but it was such a crowded field that Trump consolidated with his base. And so that's mm -hmm. a, a, continues to be a huge problem for anyone who isn't Donald Trump. I mean, if you took the numbers of all those people, Eliana, that we just named, you know, that long laundry list of GOP candidates who have announced even just thus far, it'd probably give you some pretty high percentages. Um, you know, Donald Trump, again, as I say, in the latest poll, I think was at 61 percent. So you got, what, 39 percent who are 
thinking, no, someone other than Trump, that leaves an opportunity, but not with that many candidates. I mean, if I were DeSantis, I'd be looking at all those numbers saying that I could get that 39% and I could grow it and I could wrest this thing from Trump. But it requires the small matter of everyone else dropping out. We'll see what happens. You know, the others could drop out or they may uh, cling on to this until the bitter end. We did see a lot of people drop bitter out clingers. in 2016. In the end, you know, it was basically Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and I think John Kasich hung on until the very, very, very end. Um, but we have to have a race um, first. And, you know, Megan, as important as the DeSantis candidacy might be for the country, uh, it'll also be very important for the Republican Party. Um, if he is successful, um, that would mean he removes Donald Trump as the most important um, person and force in pol in uh, in the Republican Party and as an extraordinarily important force in the country. Um, and we'll see if he's successful at, at that. But but the stakes are very high. One thing that cannot happen is if DeSantis announces, as we expect tomorrow night, CNN may not host him for a town hall. Absolutely not. And I actually am not even totally joking because they might lose the remaining four viewers they have. <laughs> they they have no more viewers. There are more people on this panel than are viewing CNN. <laughs> it's Should we tune devastating. in? Like throw them throw them a lifeline here. It's unbelievable. Like I, I want to bring you through the, the actual numbers because they they truly are shocking. Um, let me just lead with this. My good pal Eric Bowling who hosts the 8 p.m. hour over at Newsmax, is beating CNN. This is unprecedented. And just so the audience at home knows, I think it's up maybe 25 million more homes have CNN than have Newsmax. So Eric Bowling is fighting with one arm tied behind his back, and he's winning. He's beating from the Newsmax anchor desk, Anderson Cooper on CNN. It's extraordinary. And it's a combination of two things. Uh, Tucker got fired. Well, he's not fired. He's still working at Fox News. He's just not actually working. Um, but Tucker got booted off the air and the viewers are angry and they're finding other outlets, whether it's Newsmax and Eric or places like this. Um, they're finding alternatives. And Eric, you know, they know Eric from Fox. He would be an acceptable alternative, I think, for most of those viewers. And he's a, he's a great guy and he's a solid anchor. And so there he goes. He's off to the races. But meanwhile, then CNN hosts this town hall with Trump. <laughs> their audience has evaporated, right? So Eric's benefiting from some of that move over from Fox and CNN, they're evaporated. They're gone. I don't know where the CNNers went. Some to MSNBC, I guess, but listen to this, okay? This is from Daily Beast, Justin Barragona, uh, who reports, um, more than a week after CNN's disastrous town hall with Trump, the negative impact the fiasco had on the network's ratings is coming into clearer focus. Last week, uh, CNN suffered its lowest rated week since June 2015, that was right around when they started to take Trump nonstop at every campaign rally to drive their numbers up, averaging just 429,000 total daily viewers. 429, that should be their demo. That should be their overall number. They're not even cracking half a million in the overall. CNN was also down double digits compared to the same week last year in both total viewership and in the key demo of 25 to 54. Um, hold on a second. They talk about the Fox News plummeting, which we've already discussed. Then they talk about Chris Wallace. He's on Friday nights now. They tried him on the weekends. It was terrible. Literally nobody's watching that show. They moved him to Friday night. Chris Wallace averaged 224 
thousand total viewers. My God, two hundred. That's so sad. Emily Jasinski, that's the right face. She's got the sad face on. It's the sad. It's sad. Two hundred twenty-four thousand and forty-five thousand in the demo. It's the slashy, Abby. It's officially the slashies. I told the audience back on Fox, you know, you'd, you'd look at the competition over on MSNBC or wherever, and you'd always kind of snicker when they got down below 50,000 because you, you don't even, it doesn't show up on the ratings. It's just double slash marks, slashies. It's everyone's worst nightmare. Chris Wallace on CNN is getting slashies in the key demo um, and also losing to Newsmax. Newsmax is overtaking CNN. N. True existential crisis, ladies. What do you make of it? Well, that reminds me of the Harvard Harris poll we were just talking about, because if you look at Anderson Cooper, Chris Wallace, these are people who have enormous credibility in the corporate press. These are people that get uh, nice profiles written about them that are taken very seriously in sort of the vaunted corridors of power and the Acela uh, corridor in general. And so that's remarkable that the country is actually rejecting who the corporate press tells them they must take the most seriously. I think that the name of Chris Wallace's show is Who's Talking to Chris Wallace. Uh, People can talk all they want. Who's listening to Chris Wallace is actually the real question there. And um, I, I think it's with CNN. You made Abby spit up her drink. She liked that one, EJ. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I'm, I'm here all week. But uh, it's the, the the CNN had this like niche audience during the Trump administration. It's like, why was Stephen Colbert the number one uh, late night host during most of the Trump administration, despite being the least funny and the most political? It's the antithesis of the Johnny Carson model. But it's because with cable and streaming, everything is a niche now. And CNN had somewhat of a niche anti-Trump resistance audience like uh, Stephen Colbert did during the Trump administration. Chris Licht comes in and says, we're going to go back to old CNN. People are going to tune into us for Ukraine war coverage that they can trust to be right down the middle. Well, you can try to rebuild an audience, but you're probably going to lose the niche audience that you, uh, the, the small little niche audience that you had when you're trying to transition back to mass media. It's just not going to work. And that never has panned out for him because he can't, uh, he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You can't have both. You can't have woke resistance liberals as your audience and then also try to do neutral stuff because you're going to lose the woke resistance liberals. Um, and then while you're trying to keep them and like stave the bleeding, you're not going to bring in the new viewers. This is why Eliana Jeff Zucker was the grim reaper of CNN. He killed it. He killed it. They had a more moderate audience. No, it wasn't a huge one, but he drove every right of center viewer away entirely. There's not one still watching that channel. And now Chris Lick comes in to try to win them back over and does something like, oh, hosting the leading presidential candidate on the GOP side for a town hall where we might explore his views. And the audience is so angry. What what little they had left has totally abandoned them. They're like, no. So how do you what how do you build a business? How do you build a media business based on that? I'm with you. Um, The one exception I would take is that the article you read from the Daily Beast said it, you know, basically pinned the audience decline to the hosting of the town hall. Um, I think that's total crap. The audience uh, decline, you know, they've struggled with audience um, for a long time now. And the audience is terrible because the programming is terrible. And Jeff Zucker, in a way, boxed in his successors because, as you guys were talking about, he created a brand. And for Chris Lick, the new uh, CEO and president, to pivot away from that, he can't do it with the same people. 
um, Jake Tapper and all those others, they are brand Don Lemon. Those guys are branded as anti-Trump resistance heroes. Now you can tell them to be straight news. Um, but like for folks like us who were watching, you know, we remember what they were saying four years ago. And for all the Republicans who were treated like crap and stopped going on the network, um, you need new people. And I think to me, that's where um, Lick's struggles have been the greatest. Like, who's a new, interesting person who's on the air over there? Uh, yeah. He's moved Caitlin Collins around to like five different shows because she's kind of the only person who's not a lunatic on that network. Um, but yeah. other than that, like, he's just shuffling deck chairs around. And there is no, you know, Charles Barkley and Gail King, like, that's kind of interesting for one hour um, of the entire week. But other than that, like, it is pretty hard to be like, hey, Jake Tapper, you know, uh, you're not a hater anymore. You're going to serve them right down the middle. Uh, th- that's tough. What about, I mean, Wolf Blitzer, Anderson Cooper, Brianna Keelar. My all God, she she was the biggest hater of all. Not to mention Jim Acosta. Like they're they're up and down the lineup still, all the Trump haters. And yeah, you don't have to have that long a memory uh, to remember that they hate not just Trump, but the right half of the country. Um, I'll say a word in, in defense of Jake Tapper, who I actually like. I think he's left, but I think he's a le- he's on the left. But I think he's he at least tries to be fair. I know people don't agree with me, but that's how I see him. Um, I have to follow up on your reference of Gail King. I wasn't sure we were going to go there, ladies, but we're going there. Gail King. <laughs> all right. She's the answer to CNN's fair and balanced problem. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, Gail an King hour a week. was at um, the Preakness this past weekend. This is not sound on tape, right, guys? This is just something she said, I think. And um, she she said she's taking issue with people calling out Megan and Harry for their lies. Their lies about the car chase, the fake car chase that never happened, the Russiagate of New York paparazzi. Um, she says that she has real concerns about people questioning this story. And what's really important is how the couple felt. How did they feel? That's really what we should be focused on. Um, I'll get the exact quote. Let's see. Uh, blah, blah. Well, I don't have it in front of me, but trust me, that's what she said. And she wants us to really try to have more empathy for this couple. Now, this reminded me of something that somebody was saying recently. Um, To be honest with you, it was an exercise class that I I take. (laughs) They have like these young women up there and they try to offer these little profundities. And most of them are like 22 years old and haven't done anything or suffered anything. But okay, it's fine. Whatever. It's a distraction from the jumping jacks. And, And the one was saying like, judgment, you know, is a negative force. You should feel sorry for people who, who judge others. And I was like, I judge others. You shouldn't feel sorry for me. (laughs) I judge others because some people deserve to be judged. These two telling lies about our city in order to gin up fake sympathies for themselves so they can promote their own brand. I judge them. I do. And I have no apologies to make for it. And I'll continue judging them. I hope more people judge them. Um, so this all goes down, uh, in the wake of her accepting which I wanted to run by you, a Woman of Vision Award. And I, I just went back just to see, like, what the hell was she doing, like, at the heart of all this? Why was she even in our city? And it was a Gloria Steinem Award to her for her vision, you see, because she represents women and feminism and female empowerment. And this is how you know that's true. In introducing Megan at the event, uh, the person from Ms. Magazine highlighted the Duchess's tenacity and her status as a cultural catalyst. Okay, you ready? Just like totally vapid, empty words, just like the Duchess. Her core belief that representation matters, her connection to community through the lens of learning, healing, 
and inspiring have helped define her as a cultural catalyst for positive change. What a bunch of psychobabble. It's absolutely empty content. She said nothing about anyone. Tonight, we are thrilled to recognize Megan's strength, resilience, passion, and tenacity. It's starting to sound like a Kamala Harris speech, which is critical to building a better world for our mothers, our grandmothers, our children, and their children, and ourselves. So does that clear it up for you? Why Megan was honored and found herself the subject of such intense paparazzi coverage that everyone needs to feel sorry for her and accept her lies as true per Gail King. Emily, thoughts? I mean, yeah, first of all, it's very important to judge people in positions of power. It's the one thing our media does too little of. And Gail King is a great example of that. She was partying on, I think it was uh, David Geffen's yacht with the Obamas during the Obama administration and then covering the Obama administration for CBS this morning. Uh, So that should give you a taste of how seriously she takes journalism, how serious CBS takes journalism. She's in the same social circle with Harry and Meghan. ABC, we all remember, gave Oprah a platform to do an allegedly purportedly tough interview with Megan. That was CBS too. Oh, there, there you go. CBS. Um, CBS gives Oprah a platform. Their personal friends, um, Meghan Markle, old Prince Harry, and Oprah personal friends. Gail King is personal friends with Oprah. I'm sure she's had uh, personal interactions with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So if that's CNN's answer to like bringing some seriousness back to their journalism and, and boosting their credibility or at least their intrigue as journalists or as journalism, it's insane. Uh, if, if that's the person, I think it's crazy that CBS puts Gail King on that show to this day, given all of her like various conflicts of interest. And so mm. what you don't hear in that uh, list from Miss Magazine, which I didn't even realize still existed, I'm, I'm shocked that it survived to this point, I guess. But what you didn't hear is a single accomplishment. Maybe they said it and I, I just think, didn't hear it. But what no, has she there is done? one to list when that well, way she, she opened done? the suitcase on deal or no deal. Don't underestimate right, yeah. that, Emily. Stop it. Well, I, I, I shouldn't because that is so it is so inspiring <laughs> when you're able to actually make she that figured maneuver. out the codes. She unlocked yeah. it like that. With the not world easy. watching. And as a She's woman, made it look by the easy. way. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's not <laughs> no, easy. But, this, but like, I, so I've, got, I've, got, I've gotten the Gail King soundbite. And here's why it matters. I mean, to me, this directly relates to what we saw speaking of that town hall at the town hall on the subject of E. Jean Carroll. Right. You're not allowed to disbelieve. You're not allowed to. You, when somebody says they're a victim, you accept. That's it. Period. Unless they happen to be a Republican, in which case we, we need to run down all of our, our all of our uh, avenues of investigation. Um, here's what Gail said. I, it was a very unfortunate incident. It's troubling to me that anyone would try to downplay what it would mean to them. Um, it is unsettling that some are trying to minimize how Harry and Meghan felt in that moment. No, we're not. We're not. We don't believe them, Gail. We don't believe that they were fearful. We don't believe any part of their story. We believe they enjoy portraying themselves as victims and that that's what they were doing here. The reason the audience in the Trump town hall laughed when he told his bit about E. Jean Carroll and how absurd it would be that there'd be this sexual assault in the middle of Bergdorf Goodman dressing room is because they don't believe E. Jean Carroll and they're not required to. We don't have to believe Jean Carroll and we don't have to believe Meghan Markle. And it's not for Gail King, a supposed journalist, to judge the rest of us and our discernment on these, at least in the case of Meghan and Harry, 100 percent non-truth tellers. Your thoughts? Uh, also, the person who minimized their experience was the driver. Um, it was <laughs> the lowly 
cab driver who was driving them around and said this actually wasn't as bad as they say it is. And so, um, yeah, and for a news reporter to say that um, is so absurd. Either they were hounded by the paparazzi or they weren't hounded by the paparazzi. Um, You know, it's a different sort of interview to ask how this made you feel and not something that, uh, you know, we can choose whether or not to care about how they felt, but that was not the subject of, um, of these news reports. No, it's absurd. And like, I don't, who gives a, I don't care. Even if they were panicked, they panic over everything. I mean, we saw them panic in their little movie about one guy in a Vespa, like get a, grow up, grow a pair. Okay. Um, speaking of the media, Now, we've had another this is escaped the notice of some, but we've had another Nick Sandman moment in our media uh, over the past couple of weeks. This one involves yet another quote, Karen. All right. This is what the the term they use to describe any white woman who gets into a negative encounter with any person of color, whether the white woman's right or wrong. If she complains, she's a Karen. Okay, fine. Um, There was a woman who's being called Citibank bike, city bike. Karen, because in New York, if you want to bike around, you can get these like sort of public bikes uh, called city bikes. And this woman was down to like the last bike and went over to get the bike and chaos ensued. Um, We've got a video of it. Forgive me. I'm looking up her name. Sarah Comrie, Sarah Comrie, C-O-M-R-I-E. She was a physician's assistant who worked at Bellevue. She is six months pregnant. And she says she rented and reserved this last bike and that she had paid for this last bike. And you will see her in this video surrounded by a couple of black teenagers. They say they are teenagers. They they look like, you know, young men to me. Um, They could be 18, 19. I don't know. But there's a confrontation and a disagreement over whose bike it is. And I'll show you a bit of the confrontation. The whole thing. Please help me. 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 No, 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 no. Please I said no. I said sit down. Guys, guys, guys. Please help. Take She's just crying. Hassan. You're not crying. You're not crying. I got stupid. I got your video. Wait, you, 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 you put it out? Hassan, you put it out? Hassan. You pulled it out. Uh, this is my bike. It's on my account. Yeah, Please move. All right, so why don't we set, reset the bike? I'm not resetting the bike. It's his. It's his. It's his. I'm going to pull it out on your account. This is my bike. Crying. Guys, stop crying. Stop fake crying. Hey, stop touching me. I don't touch you. Hold up, hold up. Hey, stop touching me. Stop touching me. Why don't you take this bike? Stop touching me. You're not touching me. I will. I will. So take it. Baby girl, come out with you. How you stop crying? Not a tear came down, miss. Not a tear came down. That's the whole thing. That's the 90 second video that has ruined this young woman's life. Um, She's been placed on leave by her employer with some ridiculous statement. I'll read to you. Uh, We are aware of the video involving a healthcare provider off duty and away from the hospital campus. The incident in the video 
is disturbing. The provider is currently out on leave and will remain on leave pending a review. As a health system, we are committed to providing an environment for our patients and staff that is free from discrimination of any kind. What what discrimination? What are you talking about? What they're accusing their own staffer of being racist in that encounter. And there's so many jumped on board this. Enter Benjamin Crump. I mean, Al Sharpton, I'm sure, is two seconds away from tweeting. Benjamin Crump tweets out, this is unacceptable. A white woman was caught on camera attempting to steal a city bike from a young black man in New York City. How does he know? How does he know what actually happened here? There's a dispute. That's what that shows. She grossly tried to weaponize her tears to paint this man as a threat. This is exactly the type of behavior that has endangered so many black men in the past. All right. So she's pregnant. He does have hands on her, but she's endangering the black men by yelling help, right? Because she's in this confrontation with them. She says it's her bike. Uh, There's this person named Monique Judge who writes for the Griot and other left-wing publications. This is how she begins her piece. White women's, this is the headline. White women's tears have a long history of causing black death in this country. Oh, okay. Oh, just ease us into it, Monique. I was having a conversation, she writes, with one of my good friends, and she made the following astute observation. You put a white woman in a situation and a Karen will come out. Then Monique picks it up. Truer words have never been spoken. She calls Sarah Jane Comrie a Karen. She's the latest Karen and just excoriates this woman for her racism. She ends her piece by saying, um, everyone knows she's on leave from Bellevue Hospital as they conduct an investigation now. Everyone knows she could have caused harm to these young men. And now Sarah Jane Comrie is in the find out portion of the game. I hope she gets everything that's coming to her. She deserves it. Okay. As it turns out, Sarah Comrie had the receipt. Her lawyer has now gone on a media media tour showing everyone and all of the media, which is definitely against Sarah Comrie, ran it down with City Bike to see if the receipt is real and if she really did have the right to the bike. Guess what? It's real. She did have the right to the bike. It was her bike. She did reserve it. Those guys were in the wrong trying to claim that it was theirs when it wasn't. And, you know, was she a little odd seeming in the video? Yes, I will give you that. It was sort of odd. She says, help, help. That's a little weird. Okay, but it's not racist. It's not racist. And this woman's life has been ruined so far. She's not back at her job. She's expecting a baby. I'm sure she's feeling emotional to begin with. We all know you get a little spicy when you got a little baby growing inside of you. And for once, Benjamin Crump had to delete a tweet amazingly, but no apology. No, I'm sorry, Sarah. I falsely condemned you as a racist white Karen, um, which was unfair to you and every woman named Karen. So (laughs) is this another Nick Sandman? And what does it say about us? Anybody? Yeah, I I was actually working on an essay on this uh, yesterday. I was thinking about how unnatural it is for us to um, look at these like quick 
clips and then like Benjamin Crump, he's an attorney. What is he doing posting an instantaneous reaction that smears someone worldwide? Because on Twitter, you have an international audience based on this tiny little clip and based on this predicate that there's racial animus involved when he truly has absolutely no idea. You can make assumptions based on a clip, but we we know we've seen this happen so many times. Covington Catholic and Nick Sandman is a great example how clips can be deceitful. And so uh, the fact that an attorney, let alone one with a lot of power and attention on his platform, would jump in, I think tells us so much about how social media has conditioned us to start weighing in on these situations that we don't know any of the people involved. We will never know any of the people involved, but yet many of us feel perfectly comfortable smearing them as racists in a way that pushes uh, their employer to suspend them from work without any evidence. And I mean, if you look, take the, if, if you take the uh, the races of the people involved here out of the equation, you have a group of young men getting physical with one woman who's on the other side of the dispute, whether she's right or wrong. It's become intimidating that you see how long it takes anyone to intervene in the situation, period, because the incentives of how we interact with each other are shifted when there's a camera phone on in public. And there almost always is now. Who would want to intervene in the light of what happened in the, the very complicated uh, Daniel Penny situation on the subway, which is on everybody in New York City's mind? Um, mm -hmm. Who would want to intervene when someone is actually in need of help uh, when you know that your life, your family's life, your children, you could all be smeared and have to change your name and move to some rural area um, because of all of this stuff. I mean, it just it is so unnatural and sick. And this is another really good example of how truly screwed up. Uh, I think social media has media has, social media has fueled um, some incredible dysfunction in our society. Eliana, this raging racist Monique Judge doubles down. When Benjamin Crump has had to delete his tweet, it's time to back off. It's time to back off, my friend. It's time. Uh, but no, in a piece dated today, May 23rd, uh, she complains that racist trolls from all across the internet are currently overrunning the comment section of my website, my newsletter, and all my social media accounts. They're angry because I've dared to speak openly and honestly about Sarah Jane Comrie, aka City Bike Karen. Then I just got to read this to you. This is unbelievable what a racist this person is. How this person writes for any publication is beyond me. She should be run out of town on a rail. This person should not be writing for any publication that is easily accessible. She says, side note, we really should be calling these women Carolyn or Carolyn's since the behavior they're emulating when they pull these stunts is akin to that of Carolyn Bryant. Who's Carolyn Bryant? You might be asking yourself the woman whose lie got Emmett Till lynched. Oh, my God. We're there. All right. This type of behavior is dangerous and can lead to physical harm and even death for black people. And we need to be calling it out every time we see it. But I digress. They're all up in arms in defense of Sarah Jane Comrie, a woman whose behavior evidenced in the 90 second video was reminiscent of so many white women before her who have weaponized their whiteness and their tears to create drama, problems and even death for black people in the past. And she goes on to say accountability is like kryptonite to whiteness. Whiteness does not like being held accountable. Whiteness does not like seeing white people being held accountable. My God, this is the shit poured down on this pregnant woman just for trying to actually claim the bike she paid for is out of hand. It is crazy how these small clips of interactions blow up on social media. And then it drives me nuts that 
everybody, whether you're on the right or the left, there's a rush to cram the situation into whatever your prior, you know, your prior views are. And so on the left, uh, this was an example of racism on the right. Um, you know, the woman was assaulted and we actually, you know, the facts are coming out now, but this happened a week ago, you know, the fa and the facts are just trickling out and very few people, um, I think, take the posture that uh, let's actually wait and see what happened here. And this happens every time there's a police shooting, um, every time there's some kind of altercation like this. I will say on this one, you know, when it came out, like you don't see a lot of pregnant woman women approaching groups of black men and trying to steal things from them um there's not like this vast ep epidemic of that happening and so it was just sort of odd on its face like the story that was going around on social media that this woman approached a group of young men pregnant woman approached a group of young <laughs> right. men and was trying to wrest a bike out of their hands <laughs> seemed questionable um not something you encounter that often but like hey you know willing to wait and see all of the evidence <laughs> and and see where we land on this but like um but you know now for the left like let's just jam it into all of our priors you know this 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 has yes. gotten people murdered it's so true no it's like you remember like oh, when i was pregnant sure i went around starting street fights all the time you over there Dude, we're, we're stealing that's, sandwiches that's okay <laughs> we're stealing sandwiches not bikes <laughs> it's ridiculous but yeah you're right so like okay at best, there was a misunderstanding. I'm going to say at best, a good faith misunderstanding by both sides. But you can't that can't be the, pos the, the, the case because she's white and these guys were black. It has to be about race. She's the racist. She could lose her job. Bellevue ought to be ashamed of itself. I totally Disgusting. agree. The suspension from her job is insanity, insanity. And they should be shamed. It's crazy. Yeah. That and is crazy. That lawyer I hope that lawyer representing her actually does file a lawsuit. I hope, honestly, I've had enough of this shit. I, I am done with this shit. The Nick Sandman stuff, we can get down the list of stuff that people try to, as you po point out, drive into their priors to the, to the detriment of the nation, to the detriment of its all. And this kind of stuff actually is going to get somebody hurt. And I know that this woman, Monique, wants to say, oh, it's always going to be the black man. No, you know what? In this particular case, it's going to be the white woman who's six months pregnant with a little baby that she's responsible for. She didn't deserve this. She didn't deserve what happened to her in that scene. She didn't deserve what you wrote. She doesn't deserve to be smeared by these leftists with an agenda who have a, the power of a pen. What she deserves is an apology. It's just, it's really infuriating, Emily, and they don't learn. They don't learn. And they, CNN, the others, they got sued by Nick Sandman. Still, you got publications running with this, running. Yeah. And the and CNN, their their ratings not so hot. Um, a lot yeah, of the media right. ratings, uh, readership not so hot, and they're still not learning from it. And I think that speaks to how deeply rooted the ideology is among a section of their workforce, and even among the C-suite class that's terrified of that section of their workforce. Um, and and so I, I think that's an important element of all of this. And social media, the way it's designed, taps very deeply into some of our worst impulses as human beings. So that's also partially why we don't learn from any of this because we're addicted to these platforms that are like like tapping into our worst chemical um physical chemical impulses um and it's just like we, we get caught in these cycles and to your point megan people actually have already gotten hurt by it like the lies that were told about jacob blake wrecked kenosha not far from where i grew up like people like real people working class people had their property destroyed people died people were injured um people's lives were changed forever for the worst because of all of that uh and so yes it's it's absolutely true that it is destroying the country and like lives are actually on the line with this 
nonsense. Um, and mm-hmm. it's it's going to happen more and more because we just we can't learn from it. Yeah. Meanwhile, these guys, I mean, she says that they touched her. Um, you could see at least they touched the bike and uh, that one of them was saying that her baby was going to be born, quote, retarded. And that we're supposed to be looking at the, like these poor guys, these poor or gentlemanly young guys who that mean, evil, racist Karen was trying to hurt, uh, waging the war with her big pregnant belly. Uh, It's absurd. It's deeply immoral. Uh, All right, stand by. There's more to get to. More with Emily and Eliana right after this quick break. Don't go away. I challenge this committee to produce any witness or evidence against me. And if they do not, I hope they will have the decency to clear my name with the same publicity with which they now have besmirched it. (laughs) That was, of course, a clip from the godfather, Michael Corleone, there testifying for Congress. Now back to the EJs. Honestly, the man has a point. He has a a point. I mean, tell it to Central Park Karen or City Bike Karen, right? I I hope all these people will go clear her good name with the same publicity with which they besmirched it. But they won't. They won't. Um. Okay. In addition to The Godfather, I got to tell you a quick story. Okay. Now there is an advertiser named Green Chef and they are trying to get a position in advertising on this show. And they, like all the advertisers, they'll send me the thing to see if I like it, you know, because I don't want to tell everybody to go buy it if I don't think it's good. And uh, so they sent me some meals. All right. Now let me just give you like just a couple minutes on what happened to me. So on Friday night, Doug made most of the meal. And they said it was going to be 25 minutes. It was longer than 25 minutes. I helped out too, but it was mostly Doug. And Doug's actually pretty good at making meals. He's got like the thing. He can make good drinks. He can make good meals. I don't have the thing. And I was like, oh, this is kind of hard. This is all kind of a lot of work. But Doug was doing most of it. So anyway, long story short, we served it. And um, it was like chicken over noodles. And it was delicious. It was gourmet. It was like the best thing we've ever made. Look at this. It I'm telling you, it was legit. I'm like, I'm totally going to advertise with this company. I love, love, love their meal. Then, then we had, you know, two more. So, uh, Sunday night rolls around and, um, we made the next meal and that, that was Doug. Doug volunteered to do that one on his own. I'm like, great. Love you, babe. Thanks so much. And <laughs> not surprisingly, it turned out great. It was amazing. It was, uh, another chicken dish. And, um, this one had like spinach with it and, um, can't remember exactly what it was called, but look at it. Absolutely tasty. The spices they give you make or break the dish. And in this case, they make it. So I'm like, we're on a roll. I'm like, honey, I got the next one. There's a third meal. I'm going to make it. So, you know, me in the kitchen, it doesn't go well. It, it never goes well. It's literally never gone well. So I go in there. I'm following the directions. And it's like some Mediterranean dish. I'm like, okay, I, I can make it. It's got like hummus. It's got a bunch of veggies. So I'm following the directions. I'm cutting. I'm, there's all so much cutting. And I'm slicing and I'm dicing and I'm mixing and I'm adding olive oil and the spices and all the stuff. And I do the right bowls just like they told me. This is my work in progress. And I and it took me longer than 25 minutes because it's me. I'm like, this is a lot of work. I, actually, this is more than I bargained for. But I think I'm getting it. I'm doing it. I can't wait to serve this amazing dish up to my family. And I looked down and I made salad. (laughs) I literally made salad. It took me an hour. I didn't realize all I was making was an appetizer. (laughs) Was it a good salad? And once again, for the second mom will cook a vegetarian meal in a row on a Monday, we ordered a pizza. (laughs) The 
second week in a row. And Doug goes, the kids are really loving vegetarian night, honey. It's turned into sausage pizza two weeks in a row. So do you ladies cook? I mean, is it just me? No, no, no. Those meal services are, they're really hit or miss, but uh, <laughs> cooking I found in the social media era is actually a really good way to just put your phone down because you can't really text and cook. It's a good way to just kind of like unwind at the end of the day. And I never was a big, I was never really into cooking. Oh my gosh, Emily. So yes. <laughs> you you can come over to my house and unwind while you cook me dinner and I will sit there and lay back and have a glass of wine because that is not how I unwind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, we unwind with Bravo. Eliana and I do that too. Yes. When That's I hear true. people like, oh, it's just so relaxing to cook up this beautiful meal and serve it to people. I no, no, there's no cooking going on. Um, it is very rudimentary. Oh, very, very rudimentary. Like, you know, the roasted chicken from the deli section and some rice. Oh, oh, have you, do you follow Emily Zanotti on Twitter? Emily yeah. Zanotti. She's like Wire, amazing cook, right? Fox News. She's got three toddlers. That bitch is cooking up a storm, a gourmet meal every night. I don't know how she does it. I, I That roasted chicken she not posted on like in my wildest dreams. I know I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm so envious of her. I worked up a sweat making a salad. It was a salad. Once again, back to the pizza. Anyway, it's a sad, sad story. And I'm in a debate right now in my own head about whether I should just hire somebody to help me, because apparently even with Green Chef, which has given me amazing ingredients and they've idiot proofed the instructions, I still can't nail it. I just wanted you to know that. Uh, Megan, okay. let's have yeah. Emily cook for us. She can relax and cook and we can relax, have a glass of wine. Yes. And great. we can watch Bravo. Great. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? I'll just listen. You guys are bravo, and I love the Real Housewives of Miami. Love. If you're not watching it, you're missing out. Um, not the not the old episodes. You have to watch the recent episodes. Okay. Speaking of women and the the troubles we go through, um, they're having the Cannes Film Festival right now, and it's always kind of interesting to see like, is there a big hit you know that's going to come our way that we might actually be interested in they said that there was a leonardo dicaprio movie with martin scorsese that got like a 12 minute standing ovation probably just because these these big stars are in it but whatever okay we'll see what that's all about um what's making headlines right now for all the wrong reasons is the fashion all right julia fox irina shake and a couple of others are stealing the headlines for their non clothing they're naked they showed up at the events naked. This one woman, Julia Fox, um, actually had no bra and no shirt on. Um, this is this is one of the pictures we could show you. We couldn't get the rights to the other picture. But in the, in the real picture, it's totally she's as the left would say, she freed the nipple. Well, we didn't need her nipple to be free. Uh, I didn't need to see the nipple. Uh, the nipple. It's not that great a nipple. Just FYI. <laughs> I didn't want to see it. Well, I was just searching online for the news, but there it is. Then the other gal, Arena Shake, who used to date, um, I don't know, Bradley was it Matthew Cooper. McConaughey? Yeah, when it, Bradley Cooper. There we go. They're kind of the same person. <laughs> um, same thing. The, the little leather, just a little leather strap across the nipple. That's it. Look at this outfit. This is like, where, where is their modesty? Like, I, I know I sound old and I understand like that they're models and they get attention, but like, why do they feel the need to do this? To bear it all, right? I recognize. NASA is not calling them 
for their thoughts on nuclear physics. And they're not rushing off the con red carpet to go to their Mensa meeting. Okay, I get it. I get it. But does that mean that they have to totally sacrifice class and dignity and elegance? Because our girls are watching this crap. Our girls are watching this. Look at this. This is her not at the pool. This is her walking through the hotel lobby. And I I, like I don't what kind of message are they sending? Right. Like what? It's look at me. Look at my underwear. Look at my nipple. Look at my underboob. I'm like what? I don't care to see it. What, What I what I would really like to see is something else. Discretion. Some discretion. There's the model Ashley Graham doing the same ass thing. What do you think? Well, the point that they're at con, I think, is a really interesting one because this is supposed to be like the pinnacle of artistic achievement in cinema. Like this is where people show the the edgiest, the the most spectacular um, achievements in cinema um, every year. And so to have artists, I think, come and uh, be be celebrated and to be dressed like this by designers, I think, speaks to the lost concept of of beauty. Like these are actually this is a group of people that really should be gatekeeping beauty, that should be celebrating beauty. And in a postmodern world, um, what they do mostly is is tear down beauty and they see beauty as something that is relative. I think this is uh, particularly Julia Fox, the Kanye West's ex, is a really interesting Mm -hmm. example of this. Somebody who is seen as as edgy, someone who's seen as kind of interesting and talented and cutting against the grain in the fashion world um, and in the art world. Well, if you're really cutting against the grain in the fashion world and the art world, and I've actually had the same thought about some of, of Kanye West's stuff, like you should be building up beauty. You, you should be presenting yes. an image of true beauty, of truth, something that is rooted in truth instead of this postmodern relativism that says that is beautiful, that is feminine, because it's actually not. And just a, one last quick point. The other side of this coin is, is the way Billie Eilish sort of presented herself when she first came into the, the music scene. She said she dressed like that because seeing people on Instagram dressed in the way that you know, Julia Fox and Ashley Graham were gave her basically body dysmorphia, it made her want to cover herself. Um, and we've seen Abigail Schreier has reported that's pushed girls into the social contagion aspect of rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, So there are real consequences to to celebrating this kind of dress. It's so unnecessary, Eliana. You can be totally sexy and alluring. Have you ever seen that video online? They post it sometimes of like this woman in this black dress that is sexy, but not revealing walking down the streets of Italy. And like everybody there is like every single man and woman is just staring. Like she's got the thing, you know, she's got the effervescence. It's true beauty and sophistication and sexiness without just the crass, sweaty, try hard feel to it. Um, I mean, I don't even really have words for it. It's just like totally vulgar. The, the first woman is literally wearing a shower curtain. <laughs> like a see-through shower curtain is what it looks like with like uh fu- fuzzy things on it. Um, but I, you know, I remember somebody saying in the past that like, you know, men like very vulgar things when they're like 18 or whatever, and probably always, but they graduate to like something more sophisticated and European and French. Like this is like the base level um of sexuality and vulgarity that is like not sanded down or refined at all um yes it's so true it's it's just what's next absolutely no clothing just just parade naked fine let that be the example i I already see like with the young girls their dresses are more like belts 
you see the bottom. It's like, oh, my God, where's I can see Fanny. Like, that's, that's not, I don't like these examples. I understand. Look, my own daughter will hopefully follow my lead and not dress like this. But I care about more than my daughter. I care about our country and I care about our girls. And this is just crass and sad and classless. Emily and Eliana, the opposite of all those things. Love, love, love. And the EJs are here. Thank you Thanks, so much. Megan. ladies. Thanks, yeah, thanks for being here. And tomorrow we go from the EJs to VDH. Victor Davis Hansen is back with me. There's so much to discuss with him. Target is now in a spiral. They are spiraling over the pushback they're getting on their trans bathing suit with a tuck, with a pouch that you can tuck your penis, a woman's bathing suit. And VDH has thoughts. So that'll be interesting. Uh, please go ahead and download the show uh, so you don't miss it. Subscribe at youtube.com slash Megan Kelly. Listen every day live Monday through Friday at noon on SiriusXM Triumph Channel. And we'll talk more tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. <laughs> 